The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and today I am honored to be joined by Corey Hildebrand. He is the Managing managing Director of Cybersecurity at Charles Schwab, and uh, he is a Desert Storm veteran. He is a board member of the VPMMA. Uh, He was born in, I hope I say it right, Wenatchee? Wenatchee. Wenatchee. Washington, uh, lives in Phoenix, Arizona. He's got a bachelor's degree in information technology management. His wife is named Deborah, and he's got four kids, uh, Brandon, Ashley, Ryan, and Claire. Correct. Thanks so much for being here, bro. Thank you, man. Good, good to be here. That's great to have you. Now, you and I met through the VPMMA. Correct. Um, one of my clients slash friends, uh, Michael Donnelly, who is also a member of the VPMMA, VPMMA said, uh, hey, Jay-Z, because um, him and I have golfed together before for uh, SVB events and events that my company's had. And uh, he's a good golfer. I'm a crappy golfer. <laughs> yeah, but he knows I'm always up for a good cause and a good time. So uh, he said, hey, you need to get in touch with uh, Deborah and uh, Corey, the Hildebrands, because we've got this uh, inaugural event coming up. And he just wanted me to golf. And I said, well, I want to know about this uh, VPMMA. So I want to go right to the horse's mouth here. Tell the folks about the VPMMA. The VPMMA is a a nonprofit that... uh Basically, it's uh, Veterans Project Management Mentorship Alliance is what it stands for. And it, and it takes um, vets leaving the military and their families and puts them through a mentorship program that teaches them project management skills. And it uh, teaches them the project management skills from beginning to end and then helps work to, to um, get them employment after, uh, after the military and translates a lot of the skills you get in the military into what that means and how to put that on a resume and make, make it, make you more marketable, make you um, more uh, enticing for, uh, for corporations that are looking for the skills of, of project management um, basically. And a lot of things we do in the military is all about, you know, getting the job done and finding a way to get the job done. And there's not a, I don't think a better way to transition from the military in most things that we do um, other than running into the project management field, it's a good field for for those that don't know how to translate their skills into into civilian life, and uh, we work really hard at that. Well, it's a good thing because I've seen it. At, I own an IT staffing company, and I've seen many times where we really struggle to uh, with our clients really to find a way to fit um, people who are coming out of the service or out of the military into these civilian jobs. You know, all of our people are contractors and sometimes it's really tough. So, so you guys actually in the VPMMA um, assign a mentor to these folks to help them? Yeah, so a, a mentor that has business experience, that's in the business, um, that has either project management skills or leadership skills that can mentor, mentor someone for 30 to 45 days between transition um, usually we'll try to do the period um, in which you're on terminal leave. So even before you get out. So when people go, go on terminal leave, they have a bunch of leave set up and it's time that you're transitioning while you're still, still getting paid by the, by the military. And that during that terminal leave period, they'll take them under their wings and they'll talk to them and get them into a, into a project management mindset and things that businesses are looking for and just kind of get them prepped for the civilian world and kind of assign a person to that success of that veteran. I love it. So uh, we're really happy to be uh, involved in that. Because of COVID, there was supposed to be a a golf tournament last year. It got pushed off twice. And then hopefully, it's going to be, what, in April? In April now uh, is when we're going to put it on again. Yeah. 
Yeah, so can't wait for that and can't wait to meet all the people who uh, are involved in VPMMA and then really get this thing going because I think it's a it's something that's really, really needed and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. So uh, um, now you're... You're at uh, Charles Schwab, and uh, you are uh, running managing director of cybersecurity. That's got to be a handful in the time of COVID. Yeah, and, and, um, and most people understand uh, that when things transitioned, you know, you have a very large company, and almost all large companies have a have a a pretty robust um, kind of remote access methodology, especially with work working remote and the different ways that we can work nowadays, but we did, we, a lot of companies didn't have the robustness of taking three to 5% of your remote workforce and turning it into 95 to 98% of your workforce overnight in a, in a multinational um, organization where trading actually got stronger, more volume, more calls, all of that thing. But imagine taking a call center and transitioning a call center where someone's sitting in an office with all the services and all the applications, and then taking that and trying to transition that to a completely segmented, isolated environment where you don't have managers that can easily help with a, with a problem. You've got, you've got technology challenges related to how do, how do you get cues into calls when, when our, our customers call us? Those are huge transitional things that we had plans for, we just didn't have plans at the scale in which, um, in which we saw. So we went through a few months there of, of transition. Um, my team specifically worked, we're, we're lucky enough to have some people that can work remote and, and not work remote. But what, what the difference is, is you run projects, you run operations, you run different things. And without the ability to sit down in a room and really knock some things out, you find that that what would take normally 30 minutes to 45 minutes, by the time you schedule the time and get everyone on a call and do different things, then your your world changes quite a bit. And time from that would have taken a half hour takes an hour and a half or or three meetings take one meeting because not everyone can be there. So um, there's there's challenges with it, but we've done a pretty good job of, of managing it overall. Um, one thing that, that we, we do see a lot of is like all companies, is everyone now is not only a, a worker, but they're a father, they're a teacher, they're a, uh, a doorbell answerer that they never had to be. They're, they're, they're a phone ringing from someone that has nothing to do with work and, and the confusion related to technology. Some of us are good with technology. Others aren't, and, and they're good at doing certain jobs, but technology is really challenging to them. So getting them kind of comfortable with, with the area, you know, what is a work call compared to this? How do you how do you act and react to different things when you're when you're on the call with a customer? Those are things that we we uh, that I think everyone has challenges with. Well, you you guys just acquired TD Ameritrade too, right? That's very true. Very large acquisition for for Charles Schwab. So during this whole thing, we also bought a very large organization, um, and uh, we're in the process of transitioning that now. Now. I'm going to mispronounce it again. Wenatchee? Yes. Ah, I did it. Now, that I looked at the map. It looks like it's between Seattle and Spokane. Yeah. So it's right in the middle of Seattle and Spokane. If you're driving over the pass in, from Seattle to Spokane or Seattle to Lake Chelan, if you will, a lot of people know Lake Chelan because there's a lot of wineries and stuff. Just on the other side of the Cascade Mountains is where I grew up. I grew up in a smaller town. I was born in Wenatchee, a small town named Cashmere High School or Cashmere, Washington, it, it had about, we graduated with about 41, 40, 41 people in our graduating class um, that, that graduated. And it hasn't gotten much bigger since then. When actually's grown and some other areas have grown, but uh, very small town, um, kind of, I consider as close to the heartland as I grew up with snow skiing 15 minutes away, uh, hunting, fishing, uh, water skiing, all on the Columbia River, just a beautiful place in, to grow up. And one of those, places where you could leave the house at 6 a.m. during the summer and show up back home at 7 p.m. and your mom didn't even wonder where you were at the age of 10 um, yeah. and then that's kind of how we grew up when, when the street lights come on you're supposed to come home yes that's and before then we don't want to see you <laughs> yeah, that was right? Thing back when I was growing up, right oh yeah that, that was yeah. mine too I 
I grew up a really small town back in Northwest Illinois. And, uh, about a half a mile away from my house was the trailer park. And they had these really great big bushes all over the place. And we used to play hide and seek back there for hours. And then all of a sudden you'd look up and go, Oh no, it's eight 30 at night. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be at home, you know? So, but th- th- those were the best times, man. I-, I look at, uh, you know, I got a little kid, Johnny, he's two years old and, uh, it's interesting to watch him uh, learning and he learns so fast on that iPad. Yeah. Uh, it's just unbelievable at two years old, just scrolling and doing all the things that they do. And, uh, you know, I've watched some different shows about uh, the, the social networking and all these things. It's just, it scares the hell out of me for what's coming for these kids. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to make sure that I've got him out of the house as much as possible so we can enjoy all those things that you and I grew up doing. And, and, and finding the right place with the right people is always, you know, surround yourself. And, 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 and like you and I have talked about, surrounding yourself with the few people you can really trust and the few people you can, you can count on. And, and then it becomes easier to say, yeah, go to Mike's. I know Mike, you know, go, go, go here. And because you just know that they're the right people for your, for your family and for your kids. And, and that's today. Sometimes that's, a, that's, a little hard. I, I personally think that the, the technology age is something that is a huge value to children. I think the learning curve is, is much faster because of it. I also think the social skills that they don't gain from that technology is where I think later on in life we'll, we'll have the, the chance of, of, unless we do a good job as parents, to make sure that they they get that experience is, is, uh, that's what they're going to be lacking. It's great to learn early. It's also great to learn what it's like to skin your knee when you, when you, um, ride a bicycle, you know, and, and build it, build a ramp that you should have never built that your friends tell you or dare you to jump off of and you wreck yourself and and hurt yourself. There's, there's that aspect of life. (laughs) I, I remember one time I was across the street from my house, there was this, uh, large building and it had a really awesome ramp that I would jump my bike off of. And one time the bike seat fell off and I just racked my nuts so hard on that thing. (laughs) Just laying there. You know, it's one of those things as a boy, you will never forget that pain. (laughs) You never never want to see it again. (laughs) Ever. Ever. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's growing up in that kind of world. It's similar experience. We had, we had cows when I was growing up, raised four or five cows, just enough to kind of a small ranch. Um, and, and my dad wanted to teach me the value of a, of an electric fence. And I was probably six and, uh, and he taught me the value of electric fence by peeing on it. And, uh, and that was probably one of the, you know, thanks dad. But, uh, it taught me a lesson. Don't ever touch an electric fence. Trust, yeah, and don't, don't listen to your dad all the time either. And don't listen to dad because he could have just said touch it and I don't know just but uh yeah is uh it was a it was a neat experience oh that's Looking great back, I cried for three days I think but that was, <laughs> that was me growing up that was my dad so now what what year did you graduate high school 87 okay yeah I was I was 1990 I knew we were somewhere close to each other um so you, you're up there in uh the Seattle area um, were you ever into like the grunge music or any of the Alice in Chains and all that kind of stuff? I was more into the, not, not the grunge as much as I was into the, the rock, the ACDC, the, um, Van Halen, the, the kiss, the, those kind of, uh, that kind of music I was into a lot more than, um, than the grunge scenes. A lot of my, a lot of my friends, I went to some concerts because everyone was going to Seattle and going to concert, but I never really liked the music as much as they did yeah um but it uh yeah it was a, it was a big part of us growing up so i know from talking to you before that you're a garth guy yes garth yes. brooks I, and and i'm a garth guy because i think he's one of the few guys one of the few guys you look back on and and it kind of changed country music kind of changed the 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 music landscape he had a real overall impact to the to the to the industry and and keeping kind of keeping that when he came on country music was kind of changing into something more than what I would consider country music. And he made country and Western music cool again. Right. Um, and, and kind of kept true to his faith and, 
he's a guy that is a, a faithful, loyal, good human being that I, I think is, has kind of transcended his, his own fame into being kind of one of those guys. that's an okay guy um, to uh, and, and not just a great performer, but in my life and the lessons I've learned, it's, it's more about, it's more for me about what you present yourself. Everyone puts on their shoes one foot at a time. And the minute you lose sight of that or one, one leg at a time. And, and as soon as you lose sight of that, you kind of lose what you're all about. And I think he's one of the few people that have kind of kept that in, in, uh, in his career. Yeah. I got a guy, uh, <clears throat> Blake Pelletier is going to be on the podcast here in a few weeks and he's a CIO over at a company here in San Francisco. He's a big Garth guy too. He's a buddy of mine. And uh, he and his wife went out to Las Vegas and saw him play that acoustic show where it was just him and a guitar. And they were like in the second row and said it was just one of the best shows they've ever seen. And he was just so, so good at telling stories and just going through and um, just doing an amazing show, an intimate show for everybody. And, you know, uh, Blake's probably told me about it a thousand times. He doesn't have to do any of that. That's the best part about him. You know, he doesn't have to do any of that. Yeah. That's what makes Garth Garth. Yeah. Well, as an entertainer, you almost have to do it. My, my wife asks me all the time, you know, because I'm a singer, drummer. She goes, well, when, when's this whole band thing going to be done? I'm like, sorry, babe. Uh, just it's it's in the blood. You got you got to go out, you know, almost like this true ambition podcast. You know, th- this is something that I put together to help people. You know, I, I enjoy helping people. And one of the things that artists and musicians love to do is to go out and make people smile and make them have a better day than they would have otherwise. And that's when I think of a guy like Garth Brooks, that's what I think of because uh, my, my wife loves Garth Brooks as well. And, you know, some of those songs, they just kind of take you back to those moments back in the, the 90s where it was just a little easier time for all of us. It was. It was. And, and, and life was a lot simpler. The, you know, the less we know, sometimes life becomes less, becomes more simple. Um, and easier to kind of kind of deal with. Now, what kind of student were you? Uh, I was I was what I would consider a. I never had to struggle in high school. I always got crappy grades because I never studied for anything. I got I was I was I would say I was a B a B B plus, but I never had to study a day in my life. My my sister hated my guts. My family hated my guts because I I just didn't have to work that hard. When I got into college, I, I applied myself and I got a lot easier. But I would have never been able to go to college out of high school because I had absolutely no ambition for school. I was I was always different than what school offered me. Um, so I don't think I was a good student. I think my dad spent more time in high school my senior year than I did um, trying to get me out of trouble. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we, I had a, a lot of fun, but but not a great kind of student, if you will. Yeah, I was. Uh... I was a horrible student. I was the procrastinator who would wait till the last minute to do anything. And, uh, you know, I don't think that some people are ready for it until later on, you know, or just I I didn't have that drive back then like I do now where I was like, you know, you you can actually see what it's why I should work hard to get to a certain point in my life that just wasn't even in my head at the time. I was that dreamer that was thinking about other things than like, you know, studying or listening to a, a teacher give a lecture or something like that. I'm like, I got bigger things. I got bigger fish to fry, bro. I, I can tell you how many times I would say, you know, what does, what does knowing what kind of cloud is it in the sky have anything to do with when he, what I'm going to do with my life? You know, I, and I would think that in high school, which was, you know, when you look back on it, it was probably a little advanced for me to even think those kind of thoughts. Uh, which is good, but meaning you're thinking about future and not just thinking about the moment. Um, but I, I was the same way. I, I, I had a hard time understanding the value of what they were trying to get me to learn. Um, like home ec, I was great at shop. I was great at because it was active learning of functional kind of hands-on stuff. Right. I love. Yeah. That you were interested in. Yeah, mine was the same. Uh, if it was band and choir, I was all about it. You know, yeah. others, I was just like, I, I, I couldn't be bothered. And, you know, that says, uh, I'm not sure what that says about me, but that's who I was at the time. <laughs> so, who made us us, right? Now, thank you so much for your service. 
Um, did you go into the service right out of high school? Yeah. So I graduated in June and was in the Marine Corps in boot camp uh, around the 10th of December that year. And what, what was, what was boot camp like? Hell. Um, but so fun for me, for me, Marine Corps boot camp is in, in the eighties, uh, late eighties was an absolute living hell. The, the rules were not the same. They could do pretty much what they wanted to do to you. And you had no stress card. You had no timeout. You had no rules as to you know, kind of what they could do and what they couldn't do. There was real, no, no real way of, of turning people in. Um, I remember just, and, and part of it was because I knew that they couldn't break me. So I never allowed them to kind of break me. So all they wanted to do was break me kind of, kind of thing. So I remember I was in charge of the platoon for, for a while. And every time you get done eating, you go and you put the, the rest of the platoon in formation and then you come back and you say troops ready for whatever after chow. And then you do a, a pivot and walk away. And they always kept their cover, which is their, their DI drill instructor hat on the edge of their, their, their chair. And I'm not, and that's the most sacred piece of equipment in the Marine Corps ever, ever. You never mess with a DI's cover ever. And I turn and I knock a sucker on the ground and they're all sitting with all 10 of the drill instructors from the different companies, not just my platoon. So they spent, about 10 days passing me around to the different drill instructors for me to do bends and thrusts and workout for them to every one of the drill instructors. And it was, for me, that was, that was, that was hard, but it was fun. Um, and I earned a lot of respect because they didn't break me. And, and by the end, they, they, they did what they needed to do. They, they transitioned me from being kind of, kind of a, a smart ass into someone that, could be a good Marine if I was, if I was allowed. And I wasn't ready for that when I went in, I wasn't ready for the discipline. I wasn't ready for the, and I physically, it just wasn't that much of a challenge, but um, emotionally it was very, very difficult, very hard. And, and that's what they do, right? Is they, they, they need to bring you in and break you down to build you back up to be part of the team. Is that what it is? A part of the core? They're not, they're not making you a person. They're not fixing you as a person. They're making you a Marine. And um, they were really, really good at it back then. Um, so it was, I, I, I look back at my military career a lot and everything was for a reason. And I learned so much about who to be and who not to be. Um, boot camp was tough, but it was tough for all the right reasons. So when you got out of boot camp, uh, was it the right time where you went right off to Desert Storm? Or did you have some no. time before? So I had some time. I went to Okinawa, Japan, um, was, was in 1st Tank Battalion at Camp Pendleton. Uh, little area, uh, Las Flores is where the tank battalion was and got pretty good training on the M60 uh, A1 tank um, and, and went to Okinawa once, came back from Okinawa. We were on a float up to Seattle, actually, kind of a, the, every year they went up to Seafair. Up in Seattle, they took uh, their military thing that goes up there, and I was picked to go up there uh, to display a tank. And we were up there, and and they said, never go, don't leave uh, the Seattle area in case we get recalled, whatever. Of course, I call my dad. My dad comes from Wenatchee. We're on, we're driving over to Wenatchee. We stopped to get gas, grab a um, a newspaper, and Saddam Hussein had, had taken over um, um, Kuwait. So, um, and they've been trying to call me, trying to call me. So I, I made it back, um, got on ship, went back. And by the time we landed, we were on a plane to Saudi Arabia. Wow. So I, I had a high school friend, uh, who also fought in desert storm and, uh, he and I talked a little bit and I, I don't think that we, as the public had a clue, uh, what was going on over there for you guys and girls and what you had to go through. Um, what, what, what was your job in Desert Storm? So my job was, was tanks, everything related to tanks, um, loader, gunner, driver, tank commander, main, maintenance guy, uh, chow getter, you, you name it. It was all Marines are kind of, kind of everything. What our life was like was we would spend between 20 and 25 days in the desert, no running water, no, no, heated food, no cover, 
no showers. And every 20 days or so, we would go from there back into the rear where they had some stuff set up where we get showers and, and get to eat, you know, the couple of really good meals and things like that. And then we go back and we spend about four hours in there and then we go back and we did that for almost seven months. Um, wow. And in about six months while we were between advanced party and by the time the, the war actually started. Um, and we moved a few times and got repositioned a few times, but most of our time was spent um, playing cards, maintaining the tank, trying to realize what the future was going to had for us and hearing stories about how advanced the tank battalions for the Saddam Hussein army were and uh, all of the, the scary thoughts that uh, come in your mind related to what we're about to face, hoping, you know, not many of us would say it out loud, but hoping that there would be some kind of diplomatic, you know, solution to the whole thing. Um, but fearing the worst and spent most of our time waiting for the next mail run to, to see if we got anything from our family or friends, um, you know, whether it's a card or foot powder, whatever you, whatever you get, um, anything. And we'd get mail probably once a week. And that was a big time for us. So that's what, that's what a lot of the time spinning up to the, to the storm was um, in desert shield and just getting to know people really well. We, we'd have a once a week, we call it Dr. Pimple Popper and living in the desert that dirty, you have a lot of, things that grow on you that no, normally grow on you being as filthy as you are and living on a tank, you're living next to a tank or on a tank. Um, and we'd have one guy that get all dressed up and we'd throw money in a, in a, in a pot. And then one guy would, would pull out his K bar and pop pimples on another guy's back. That was entertainment. It's scary to think that that was what we did to entertain ourselves that and scorpion fights. Um, we, we'd all collect scorpions through the week and through the months. And we have different, um, different scorpions and we'd bet on the scorpion fights and play a lot of spades, a lot of hearts. Um, but it, anything to, to not think about the situation you're in. Man, that had to be scary. Scary. And you don't think of it. And, and I, I've looked back on it a lot. You are, you're a jarhead. You're trained for this. You know, you're ready for it. You know what you know, and you trust the people around you. You, you aren't afraid in the sense when you're, Around everyone, you get afraid when you call in your act at night and you miss your wife, or you miss your kid, or um, you don't know what's going on at home, or you didn't get a letter that week. It's not afraid of as much the known. It's more of the fear of what you don't know, what you're missing, what, what things are happening around you, what the other battalions doing or the tanks are doing or where they're at with Kuwait, because they keep you in a position where you know just enough to do your job because they don't want you to think about much other than getting in a tank and operating a tank, doing it the best you can and making sure everything works the way that it should work, including your brain. So the hardest, scariest part was the, the, the nights when you crawled into your rack or into your sleeping bag and you wondered what, what, what tomorrow would be like. Yeah. I was going to, the, the next question I was going to ask you is like, uh, how, how much information do they give you? I mean, is it, is it just enough to, um, uh, keep you it's, in the know a little bit about what you're going to be doing next, or is it just you, you no, sit there and wait? So you have operational security all the way through me, meaning you can't, if I write a letter to my wife or I get on a phone with, with my wife and I say, Hey, we're moving 15 miles East next week to get closer to, to why. And for some reason that line is bugged or that, that, it, that, that my wife tells a friend over a phone call and something happens. So they don't tell us much at all on the ground. Um, there's certain people that know a lot, um, but they don't tell us much on the ground because they don't want to put us in a position to where we say something. And next thing you know, we're giving up operational secrets that we don't even know we're giving up. So just enough to keep us informed. When's the next time we're refueling? When we're moving, not even where we're moving, when we're moving, when to be ready to move, um, you know, when chow is, when you get haircuts, keeping you busy enough to to not think about some of those things and moving enough to where you're, you don't realize that you're basically stagnant waiting for something big to happen. So just enough to make it, make it dangerous. And then as we rolled up to a move or something or, or the war, you would have more discussions because we're basically far enough out in the field where we weren't going to get any letters out or get any phone calls. It was kind of going to happen, but we didn't necessarily know it was going to happen. Um, we realized it was real when the first planes 
blew over and the first bombs were dropped in the, in the air war. Um, and we knew it was real, but then it lasted and it lasted. And the air war lasted without, you know, maybe they're just going to decimate them all and we don't have to do anything. Maybe our job is, is done because of the air war. And then uh, the longer it got, the more we realized it was, it was more real. So um, I, I was doing some research and I read up on the Gulf War syndrome. Uh, was everyone exposed to nerve gas? It's such a hard thing to say, Johnny. I, I think um, there were many, many times during the 100 hours that we were, what, we, what I consider that, that kind of the 100 hour ground war, um, where we had unexplainable puffs of smoke that would, that would go up. We'd, we'd hit something and, and a puff of smoke would come out. There were numerous times when, when there'd be special kind of, they, I forget what they call them, but they're basically nuclear chemical biological units on wheels that would go up and take samples and then disappear. And we'd never know why they were there or what they did. So for, for me, it was, I, I think Gulf War Center was, it's more about the preparation for nerve gas. And, and I don't know, so the peritostigmine that they gave you, basically uh, the nerve gas would, would mess with receptors between your different nerves. And the peritostigmine was kind of a, a, an unapproved drug that they gave you to reduce the effects of nerve gas had you, had you got it. Um, so I don't know necessarily how much of it was related to nerve gas. I have my own personal feelings that there were other things that the military did for the right reasons, but, um, but kind of helped cause that. And then sucking a hundred hours of, of oil during in the, in the ground war was really, really not good for a lot of, a lot of people. And what that did to the ground and to the things that we were actually laying on and living in and in tanks, I was exposed to um, depleted uranium ammunition. So the, the sable round that, that the tanks are made of, they're made of depleted uranium. Um, so, so we had never used those because you only use those in combat and we trained with, with inert um, rounds. These were real. And when they loaded us up, when we first went out to the field, I don't think they expect us to sit there that long. And, and a lot of us, in, including some of the art, artillery and other other groups had this type of ammunition that were they were sleeping next to and cleaning all the time and being a part of. So I think there's multiple things, Johnny. I don't think it was one thing necessary that people could say it was just nerve gas. So are the folks uh, are the folks who have like Gulf War syndrome? Are they being taken care of right now? I can tell you from personal experience that. If it's hard to explain what Gulf War syndrome is, because it's some some people it manifests itself as stomach issues, some people it manifests itself joint issues as 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 uh, migraines. So it's 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 hard for the people that you talk to at the VA to understand the larger scale. So they want to treat you for your symptom. They want to treat you for what you have. So for me, I had to get diagnosed with five or six different things. Then a board looked at it and said, wait a minute. And then they came down with the diagnosis. I didn't go in saying Gulf War syndrome. I went in for different things that were wrong with me and they put it together. And then that's when they gave me the rating for, for Gulf War syndrome. Well, I, think it would, I think it would be so hard because all the things I was reading about um, I mean, there's so many different things that you guys and girls had to go through as far as different symptoms. And I mean, I was literally reading and there was like, there's like 17 different symptoms. And I'm thinking, well, how can anybody sit there and try to figure out what's wrong with them when you have all these different symptoms that could be a cold, a flu, a nerve pinch, you know, all these different things. Acid, acid reflux. It could be a hundred you know, and, and or diarrhea, you name it, everything, they all, they all have to be looked at from a, from kind of an outside lens when you, when you go to get diagnosed. And now they have boards that are much more suited to do some of those things. They'll take a, a record book and say, all right, you've been treated for these seven things in the last year. But the biggest challenge, John, is, is so many people that get out of the military don't use the services that the VA really has to offer. It had a bad name for a long time. 
a lot of people are too tough, too strong, too, too nothing happened to me. I'm bigger than, than that. And they don't utilize some of the services that are there. And, um, and when they do, they have a bad experience or they have a long wait or they have, and if you're employed and you've got home, you've got insurance at your job, why would I ever go back and put myself through that when I can go to my doctor and it's just taken care of? Right. Um, because they don't always think of the big picture that it's not just a headache or, or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's something that is bigger than what they think it is. Yeah. Well, hopefully they'll go out and, uh, you know, cause Another thing, too, is that it's not just about you as the person who's dealing with it. It's if you can go in and get treated for it, maybe you can help out one of your buddies or your um, other, somebody else who might run into the same situation down the road. So yeah. you might not just be helping yourself out, but if they can figure out with you and 100 other people that you're all kind of having the same issues, maybe it's going to help everybody else out, too. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I, I, I've been trying to do everything I can to give back to veterans organizations ever since I started getting real help from, from the, the, the VA and from, from other organizations. And um, they're finally taking me up on, um, I'm going to do a couple talks with, a, with groups of veterans and, and offered whatever I can just to sit down with them and kind of say, this has been my plight. This is where I've been. And this is kind of, you're never going to be normal again, what people consider normal, but you can be less broke than what you thought you were yeah. and, uh, and get through life. And that's what the VA is kind of taking me up on now, which is exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I got a, my uncle Gary, uh, he was in Vietnam and, uh, I've only heard him a couple times, uh, talk about, uh, what went on. And uh, it's usually, uh, I know that you've got a kegerator back there in the background. He's got a kegerator in his garage back in Savannah, Illinois. And a couple times when he's had enough drinks where he can actually talk about it a little bit, um, it, it's unbelievable what um, the, the brave people who defend this country have to go through. Because I've said it before. The, the biggest thing that I ever had to fight for in my life is a parking spot. Right. And it's because of people like you and because of my Uncle Gary and other people who fight for the freedoms of people here. And for God's sake, if we don't give them and you the help, uh, the, what the hell are we doing? And, and you, you hit it right on the head. And, and I'm a firm believer of this. Anybody that... And your, your uncle is a great example of that. Anybody that's truly been there will never brag about ever being there. They never want to talk about it. The hardest thing in the world to do is talk about it. Um, and the people, they'll talk about, and even me to this, to this day, I'll talk about my experiences after those kind of experiences and kind of what my life turned into as a result of some of those experiences. But it's very, very few and far between that you'll talk about kind of how how you got where because usually there's an event or there's something that got you or series of events that got you to where to where you need some kind of help or some kind of acknowledgement of what happened and the more you can get people to just talk about it the more you're helping them and the hardest thing is is for anybody to ever say hey i understand because I don't understand the guy that was standing next to me, what he feels. And they right. were there. I don't know what you feel. I don't know what your head felt. I don't know what your emotions are. I don't know how you handled it. I don't know. Um, and it's hard for people to, to understand kind of that aspect of stuff. Yeah. It's amazing what can be done if someone is just willing to talk. And if you've got a willing participant on the other end who is willing to listen, just listen. And you can sit there and it can be a game changer. You know, I knew you for, I knew you for about a week and we had probably one of the, my most, I would say open conversations about my life that I've had with almost anyone. And that the, the trick is not someone that's trying to acknowledge, just listen, you know, and, and you don't find that very often. And that's why I think, I think you and I kind of hit it off from the beginning because you you aren't a person that 
is interested in fixing. You're interested in hearing and you're interested in helping. And that may not be fixing. That may just be stopping and listening. And, and you don't find that in people very often. Usually they don't want to spend the time unless they get something out of it. Um, and, that's, and that's human nature. I think the biggest thing that I'm interested in is learning. Yeah. And uh, if I can sit and learn from somebody else who's been through something that I'll never be through, I will never be through. I mean, it's just like uh, the Black Lives Matter. It's about it's about all these different things that are going on right now. I am never ever going to understand what a black person's gone through. Ever. I'm going to have empathy. I'm going to listen, and I'm going to come up with um, my own ideas about how hopefully we can work together to make their life and everybody else's life better. And I, I, I think it's the same thing with everybody. If we just sit around and talk and have a conversation, so much good can come out of it. But if we're out there breaking into stores and do all kinds of crap like, going, like it has happened here in the last six months, nothing happens then except for bad things because nobody's talking. Everybody's yelling and just... This is, this is what I think. This is what I think. I, I care about what you think, but we have to have a conversation. I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I, I will never understand the plight of, of people that haven't experienced the things that I've experienced in my life, but you can't expect me to, ex to understand your plight on the same. I will never say that I understand it, but you can't tell me that I should understand it because I'm acknowledging that I have no idea what you have gone through, what you have dealt with, what you have done in your life. So the both, the, unless we talk, I can have compassion. I can have love. I can have honesty. I can have openness. I can, I can be your best friend, but I can't, I can't ever walk a day in your shoes. No matter what I do, I can't. And listening and talking and not talking at, but talking to someone is what really matters. So how long were you in uh, the Gulf? I was in the Gulf for about nine and a half months, overall beginning to end. Um, I left in, I think, April, and we, we got there in, I think, um, late July, August, I believe, time frame. Um, but it was... It was probably, looking back on it, it was probably the shortest nine months of my life because every day kind of seemed like it was your last, so you lived it like it was its fullest. And it just, the days kind of run in to one another, um, even before the war. So it was, uh, it was probably the shortest nine months of my life. It went pretty fast. So how long were you in, were you in the service for four years or how, how long in, were you in? Nine years and nine years and seven months. So Nine uh, years and seven months. Yeah, I did a six-year tour and then I did a three-year tour and did a seven-month extension um, <clears throat> because when I re-enlisted I went into um, into computers so they, they I had a seven-month training and then did three years of uh, after that training. So then um, when you came back to civilian life what was that transition like for you? It was easy for me it was easy I got a job in Okinawa Japan um, I was, I had transitioned, like I said, into computers and Intel Corporation did a job fair in Okinawa, Japan. And I went to the job fair and uh, got a job, got offered a job, more money than the Marine Corps could ever offer. So I was like, yes, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm glad I did what I did. I'm ready to get out now. The Marine Corps was changing quite a bit. Um, it was in the, the mid to late 90s, uh, different leadership, um, obviously, and the, the military was changing few drawdowns, a few, few things that I didn't necessarily like about where the, where the Marine Corps was going. Um, and so perfect timing, loved when I was in, loved the guys, loved the, the, the girls, loved everybody. When I transitioned out, um, uh, the transition from that to that was not a really a transition. I went, landed 15 days later, I was in work at work in a fab in, in Oregon, unlike most people. I had a skill that I could transition out of and, and went to work right away. It was, it was the years and the, the time after that when things slowed down enough that really impacted my life, that really started. The transition became 
real. Um, and, and it didn't really become real for almost, almost 10 years after I got out. When I, in um, the, the mid to late 2000s is when my, my story got really, really ugly and wasn't proud of who I was, wasn't proud of what I was. And um, I, I would either have to change or I'd be dead. Um, so it was, it was a tough time. Getting out was easy. What I never focused on was the, how damaged I was. Um, I focused on staying busy, keeping my mind busy, staying drunk enough to where I never had to think about it, staying high enough to where I never had to look at anyone. And, um, and then it all came crumbling down. I was making tons of money working for a commercial real estate investment company and lost it all overnight. So what, uh, so everybody who knows this podcast and you know me, I've been sober six and a half years and I had one of those situations, um, back in 2014 where I was at that turning point and all of us are different, but I was at that point where I was done. Well, I wasn't done. I could have, it was at that crossroads where you can either keep going this way, the way you're going right now, or take a left turn or turn completely around and figure something else out. Um, I had so many things in my past that were unresolved or that I wasn't willing to take a real honest look at. Was that the same thing with you that, uh, you were just kind of covering things up um, and keeping yourself medicated or what, what, what was, what was your situation? So I, I switched jobs. Um, so I, I worked for Intel for a little while and realized that it was too militarized. You couldn't make change. You really, it was too close to the military for me um, too organized. So I went to work for another company and basically that company in Oregon, I ended up moving to Philadelphia. And I ended up starting the IT organization for a, a real estate investment company over there. Um, Berwyn Property Group was the name at the time. And, um, and very, very successful real estate investment company, um, built buildings. And I ran kind of their IT show for, for quite a few years. And I was, all I did was work and get drunk or high. I never slowed down. I got divorced, um, lost most of what I had in 2006, got my DUI in 2006, still wasn't willing to, to really change, but that was really what I considered my, one of my lowest points. And then I managed to hang on long enough, basically stopping to go and work. I'd go into work at eight by 10, I was at the bar. By nine o'clock at night, I was, uh, by 10 a.m. I was at the bar. By nine o'clock at night, I was still at the bar and, and repeat and rinse. And, and you know, the, the company tried to give me the right space and, and all that. And finally, they said, you know, you're done. I, we, can't, we can't do this anymore. And, and you're, you're done. <clears throat> and then I went into the real downward spiral of, um, of, of the drugs. And that's what really got me to a point where I didn't know which way was up. I ended up homeless after about six months, about, about four months in 2009. Um, and then what, what, hold on a second. What, what kind what kind of drugs were you using? If you don't mind so anything and everything you get from a pill, uh, quite a bit of cocaine. Um, uh, a lot of, a lot of the hydrocodone oxycodone, um, uh, just about anything that anyone had that I could buy. And, and that's, um, not, not marijuana not nothing that would slow me down. <laughs> right. Um, nothing that would nothing that would make me relax. Only things that would make me, you know, be at my highest. Um, you know, the the interesting part is knowing you is yeah. that you you are a very hyper person, just the way you are. Right. So I mean, add that in. I mean, did did you go off the rails or did it actually right. calm you down a little bit? Because I know some people that it'll actually level them out a little bit. Um, what, what was your experience? It, it leveled, it leveled me out, but I would, I would drink enough to where I would be so far down that it would get me back to kind of where 
where I would normally normally be. So it's the combination of the booze and the and the drugs. But if I just did the, the cocaine at all, it would it would make me so I could sit down and watch TV at least. If I didn't, I could never sit down and watch a television program because my mind would never stop thinking about anything but bad. So I couldn't let my mind relax. If I did, I I, I imploded. I couldn't I couldn't exist. And I didn't realize that, John. I didn't realize that that was my problem was the fact that I, I couldn't look at my past. I couldn't focus on, on anything related to what got me where I was. Um, and then had a girlfriend named Deborah. She put me on a Greyhound bus from, from, from Philadelphia to Washington State. And when I got there, she said, I'll be with you and I'll be with you forever, but you're going to the VA and you're going to get help. And I laughed at her and whatever and thought, you know, and, and basically blew it off. And a week later, she said, we're driving to the VA and I'm going to sit there with you until you see someone. And went into the VA, sat down with a psychiatrist. Within 30 seconds, she goes, you're getting in your car and you're driving to Spokane. I've never seen someone as with as unacknowledged PTSD that, that you have and wouldn't even talk to me. Um, and basically all the good things in my life started happening at that moment. All the, all the, the positive things in my life started happening then. And I went four and a half years or so without touching booze or drugs, um, got my life back together, got, um, my children back in my life, got my, um, just everything that I lost uh, and what it really boiled down to was being willing to look back, being willing to, to face um, what got me where I'm a pretty good guy at the end of the day. I don't have to hate myself every day. I'm a people, people like me for who I am. I don't have to try to be anything different, um, but I'm a hard guy to get along with and that's okay too. But, but being hard to get along with has nothing to do with, me being afraid of who I am. Right. Um, and, and it's, you know, you, you, when, when I, when I, and I thought about it some, when you, when you die, I don't want a hundred names on my headstone. I want, this is a friend, a great friend of three people. And, and, and that's the, the few things that, that are important to me is getting, getting good people around me and being honest about everything in my life. Well, the great thing about um, <laughs> true ambition, which is what this podcast is called, um, that quote that I use to come up with this comes out of an AA book called 12 and, The Twelve and Twelve. And it says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Um, I read that five plus years ago and it changed my life. Um, I've never been a big reader. Um, I mostly listen to audiobooks. Me too. Um, I just, I, I can't concentrate enough to sit there and read a book and remember what I read the for the last two pages, but I can have somebody read it to me and I can understand it all day long and be good with it. Um, but what you just talked about is so important for people to hear, which is if you've got these voices in your head, if you've got these things going on in your life where things are spinning out of control and you can't believe that you've gotten to this point where you've lost everything, you're homeless, you know, whatever it is. And I didn't lose my home, but I was morally bankrupt. And I didn't know where to go. I had no idea what to do. And as soon as I had, I was willing, you know, you had an angel named Deborah. You know, I had one named Carissa who was tired of my shit. Yep. And just said, something's got to change here. And all of a sudden, as soon as I was willing to do it for myself, I didn't do it for her. You didn't do it for Deborah. You know, you got to do it for yourself. But as soon as you're willing to take a good hard look in the mirror and face the real issues. And the other thing is, too, everything that you thought you were going through by yourself, 
as soon as you start digging into it, you find out there's a whole bunch of other people out there that have gone through the same exact things that you've gone through, no matter how horrific they are. Yep. And as soon as you start talking to other people, you not only help yourself, but you don't even try to. You're helping so many other people just by being willing to help yourself. Yeah, it, it, and it takes it takes a lot to be where I am in business to um, make it where I've made it and to acknowledge the hardest thing for me to do sometimes is acknowledge where I truly, truly came from. And um, what I, what I, if anybody takes anything out of this, this discussion is, is I've been there and I've done that. Hit me up on LinkedIn, hit me up anytime you want. If you're having a problem, you don't have to be homeless yet. You don't have to, if, We've, we've all we've all had hard times and if you just want to talk and you just want someone to listen um that's all i want to do in my life and and all, my my only ambition um for 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 getting through life is to listen be honest and offer all of what i am and um accept whatever the other person wants to be whoever's fake doesn't have much room in my life. I don't have enough time, but if you, if you ever want to be a part of, of just talking about certain, certain things, PTSD happens to be mine, but I've, I've been through addiction. I've been through a lot of, of different things. I've lost a lot of jobs. I've had a lot of great jobs. I have success. I've had a ton of failure, um, but nobody is, nobody's better than anyone. And we all have to work hard to make it through life. Amen, bro. Amen. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's so amazing for me to sit here. Um, I just got a little bit of chills because this is exactly what I'm talking about. When I came up with the idea to have this podcast, um, you know, I, I talked to amazing business people like yourself. I talked to sports figures. I talked to, uh, entertainers. Everybody's the same. We're all just trying to get through this crazy thing called life the best way we can. And the most successful people that I've talked to are the people that are just out to help other people. And then all of a sudden, the universe opens up and gives you everything you need. That's it. Um, if, if you have any opportunity to help someone and you don't, you're going to look back in your life and say, at some point in your life, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, but at some point in your life, you're going to look back when you need something and, and it's going to, you're going to remind yourself that somebody really needed you. And, you know, it, it's not about money. It's not about time. It's not about some people just need to know you're there. Um, and that's what, what really changed in my life for the last kind of 10, 12 years is, is listening when there's pain and being, being there when, you, when people need help. And, um, and having people around me that I know to know I can go to when I need help. And that's, that's how we get, get through life. So aside from the VA, um, anybody who's, uh, a veteran, uh, police officer, anybody else who's dealt with uh, PTSD or might be dealing with PTSD right now, or you might not know, maybe you're wondering what's going on with you. Um, are there any other places except for the VA that people can go that you know of? There's a lot of great veterans organizations. Um, I, I, the VFW is a fantastic organization. They have a lot, Veterans of Foreign War, they have a lot of experience with it. Um, they have a lot of great experience related to the, um, to uh, PTSD and, and how to get through the VA system. They offer a lot of help when it comes to getting your, your ratings and getting different things related to the VA. I think they're one of the best. I think the uh, uh, American Legion also ha has uh, good opportunities. American Legion does a little more marketing than, than what I really necessarily like. Um, the VFW really does give back um, as much as they can. And I would say walk into a VA or a VFW anytime you get a chance. Uh, as a veteran of foreign war, if you have a, have a problem related, walk in there and there's a hundred people that- Oh, that they'll bend over backwards. That, that will give their, give everything to make you feel at home. Um, and, and I would, I, I would, a lot of military veterans organizations that offer a lot, lot of opportunity 
in my opinion, not a ton of them offer great PTSD related talks. Um, and that's one of the, one of the, one of the organizations I'm going to, I'm going to continue to work for and set up is, uh, something that just kind of puts you in a position where if you have PTSD, you can, you can let, not think about it for a couple of days and, and relax a little bit. And there's also people that just want to come and talk about their, their past experiences. So, um, that's one of the things that uh, veteran game changer is going to be as I, as I grow that, uh, nonprofit. Oh yeah, I forgot to talk about that. That's another thing, uh, veteran game changer. Um, talk about that a little bit, real quick. It's it's a it's a it's it started back in 2016 or no 2018. Um, I slowed it down when I took the job of Schwab quite a bit. My goal of the the organization is to um, make it a a kind of a make a wish foundation for veterans, anything and everything. So it can be it can be a dream of skydiving. That we fulfill. It can be a child that's that that has had a father that's passed that wants to see that it, the Yankees were his favorite, their favorite team and they want to go sit in the same seats that their dad sat in. Those kind of things that really don't have much to do with PTSD. And then the second side is changing the way you look at life by experiences of PTSD. The experiences we had in the military are great. There's value in all of it. There was a moment that it got dark, and that that moment doesn't have to define you. The military, the past military doesn't have to define you. It can be a part of you, but it doesn't have to be a, be a major part of everything you do. And changing that, that, that I am a veteran, therefore I am who I am because I'm a veteran into I am me and I was, and I am a veteran, but that does not what defines all of me. Um, it's helped me get to a point where I can't necessarily always blame something. I can, I have to pick myself up on my own Volition, and that's what I'm going to do a lot with with veteran game changers. Love it. So, where where can can people find that on the web? Yeah, veterangamechanger.org. Um, it's been out there a while. It's doesn't have the best content in the world, but it tells you our story, tells you what we're going to be, and I'll and I'll be running um, a, as it grows a little bit more, and I get a little bit more time to to run it. I'll be reaching out to Johnny and other people and making sure you guys all know that uh, where it's at and how to get to it. And then it's at uh, vpmma.org. BPMMA.org is the Veteran uh, Project Management Alliance. Okay, but, great. Uh, I'm also a great part of it, so are you. And then anybody who's watching this right now who is struggling with uh, addiction, uh, be it uh, alcohol or drug, um, go anytime to AA.org for Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, they can help you with uh, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. They can point you in the right direction. You can find phone numbers and other content there to point you in the right direction to get some help. You just have to be willing. So, um, you're a big cigar aficionado. Yes, sir, I am. And uh, I like cigars. I wouldn't consider myself an aficionado, but uh, I just had myself uh, a little Arturo Fuente for lunch, nice. and uh, I, I saw some smoke billowing up there a second ago. What, what are you smoking? I smoke, uh, my favorite cigar is a Liga Pravada number nine. I'll, I'll smoke the 52 quite a bit, but it's a little heavier smoke than... Uh, then the Arturo Fuente. Um, I'm also a big My Father fan, um, but uh, I, uh, I I stopped smoking in 2015, and I just started smoking cigars probably a year and a half ago. And it's something that I really, really sit back and enjoy, and um, gets me out and 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 teaches me something new. So it's fun. Oh, I love it. I, yeah. you, we we were up in uh, Reno for Carissa's birthday party, and uh, you came up and gave me. I don't know what the smoke was, but I always smoked the lighter ones. <laughs> that one almost knocked me on my ass. <laughs> They're good ones. They're good ones. Yeah. Great, great, great smoke. A little stronger, but good flavor. Well, um, I always end uh, this podcast the same way, asking the same questions to everybody who's on it. So um, being where you've been, Knowing what you know now, uh, what is your true ambition? Two ways. One, in your personal life, and two, in your career moving forward. For me, it's the same in the sense I want to be a servant leader, a servant father. I want to be a, a servant friend. I want to be, I want to be, always be less than what people think I am in the sense of always approachable. I want to 
always be the person that you can feel you can talk to. I always want you to know that I will give, I will give every ounce available to help in any way that I can. Um, and my ambition is to just let people know that success is possible, even if you have been homeless, underground, underwater, can't breathe, and have no idea what the next breath is going to look like, success is still possible. And that success comes from trusting, talking, and being open. And that's my ambition, to get that message to more vets and to never have another vet that doesn't want to be on the street ever be on the street because of this thing that we call PTSD. That's true ambition, baby. That's it, baby. All right, man. Well, I thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. And uh, thank you all for uh, tuning in to the True Ambition Podcast. We'll see you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be